Amen. Well, good morning. It's great to see you. Um, happy Father's Day to you in the room. Uh, my dad's in the room, so I'm grateful for that. Just, um, let me say this. Uh, we said this around Mother's Day, too, and I want to encourage us um, on Father's Day. Um, I know Father's Day um, can come with incredible joy, um, but also incredible pain. Uh, this might be the first Father's Day without your father. Um, you might be navigating things with your father. Um, you might see the potential of what could have been um, if there was a present father in your life. And you won't find any judgment or condemnation from any of us. Um, I think regardless of where we fall, um, if when you think of your dad, there's a lot of joy, or when you think of dad, there's a lot of potential or pain, um, I think both of those extremes show us that there's an incredible value in the role of the father. Um, whether it, he was present or whether he wasn't, um, whether it was good or whether it wasn't so pleasant, um, both extremes show us that, man, there's this weight and there's this potential and there's this incredible gift that God's given us um, in the gift of a father. So um, in light of the gospel, uh, we never want to idolize anything, even fatherhood. Um, for those of you in the room who are trying to be a father and those kind of things, um, please know we're not here to idolize fatherhood this morning. Um, the fathers in the room could tell you that even being a dad uh, does not fully and finally satisfy your soul. It just doesn't. Um, but at the same time, we don't want to minimize fatherhood because God in his grace has given us this incredible role of the father. And uh, man, uh, the men in our church, uh, the fathers in our church, you are a gift to us, you know, physical fathers to your family and spiritual fathers to the children in this body and to our church. And I look around the room and I'm just grateful uh, for the fathers that God has given us. And uh, let's give glory and honor to our heavenly father um, for all the ways that he makes up for our brokenness in our, our fatherhood journey. So let's pray and then uh, we'll jump in the word together. Um, Heavenly Father, um, God, as we celebrate earthly fathers today, um, we give them honor, but all glory and all praise goes to you. Um, you are the example of fatherhood. Um, you are the father that um, us as earthly men, um, God, desire to orient our parenting around. Um, God, your love, your compassion for your children, your grace, your mercy, your patience with us. Um, God, help us to be more like you. Um, as men and women who follow after you. Uh, we're grateful for the gifts. Um, you're so sovereign over who you bring to our church, um, for the gifts that they have and that they bring, um, God, and the fathers that you've put in our body um, to point us to you. Um, so, God, we're grateful um, that in the, the grand scheme of things, for some reason, um, you've given the men, the fathers, um, a, a weighty voice in our lives. Um, God, all of us have um, things um, that were said by our fathers that we wish we were said by our fathers. Um, God, that there's just an incredible weight um, to the voice of the fathers in this world. And uh, God, we're grateful um, that we can spend some time this morning looking at the voice of the Heavenly Father um, in your word that you've given to us and revealed to us. Um, so God, um, humble our hearts. Um, we're grateful for some minutes this morning where we can remind ourselves of the gospel and uh, partake of communion together as a church family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A um, couple things before we jump in. If you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, 2 Corinthians 6 is where we'll spend a couple minutes this morning. Um, but while you're turning there, I do want to let you know we've got a couple of um, announcements just to kind of keep you informed in the body. Um, if you're 
well, you're here, so you were not in the first service. In our first service, um, <laughs> Neil Dixon and Olivia May were up here, and uh, we prayed for them. Uh, we want to let you know that both of them will be transitioning off of our staff. Um, they have served us for the past year um, in our kids' ministry, and uh, they are both, by God's grace, God's opened some doors for them, and they're pursuing some other opportunities, and they are... Um, you know, young adults in East Memphis, and they live pretty far away from Carville, and they have sacrificed a lot over this past year to come out here and to serve our families and to serve our church. And uh, by God's grace, they are moving to some different opportunities, and we prayed for them as the church body and all of those kind of things, but we want to keep you informed. And uh, let me just say this. We have an incredible church family, and everyone pulls their weight around here. Um, so things aren't going to miss a beat. Um, we are going to essentially hire one person for those two roles, so the two roles will turn into one, and uh, we're looking to do that within our church body. We're having some conversations already. We want that person to be um, a part of the congregation here. Um, so we're having some conversations. Um, if you're interested in that, just let me know, and we'd love to talk to you, um, but just know that some of those conversations are already in the works, and nothing's going to miss. Um, we've got incredible volunteers that own the ministry to begin with, so I uh, want to keep you updated on that, and then... One other thing is uh, next week we're going to do family dinner uh, up here next Sunday evening at 6 o'clock. We periodically love to get together as a church family and just break bread together. In light of Acts 2.42, you see the early church. They devote themselves to sound teaching, uh, but also to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And uh, we want to gather together next Sunday evening and uh, grill some burgers and hot dogs and throw some slides out on the lawn for your children so you can interact with adults and watch your kids from a distance and uh, just be the church together and have fun together and uh, get to know each other better and those kind of things. So that'll be next evening, next Sunday. Uh, we sent out an email about that a couple days ago. And if you didn't get that, if you're not on like the Carville specific distribution list, um, grab one of these response cards in the front of the, the chair and just drop your email on it and throw it in one of the boxes and we'll get that fixed for you. And then uh, also if you've got prayer requests or anything like that, we love to look at these and pray over these every week. So I uh, want to let you know about that. We'll remind you again next week, uh, but that's coming up next weekend. We'd love for you to join us. Um, so I think we're all there. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, let's, uh, let's read this together. If you'll stand, uh, I'm going to read in verse 3. Uh, we're going to read verses 3 through 10. And uh, this is probably one of my favorite passages in the Bible. So let's read this together. It says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, and as having nothing yet possessing everything. Um, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, let me pray one more time. Lord, uh, be with us as we look at your word. Um, God, you, you promise us um, that your word is um, living and active, God, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that, um, God, by it you warn us, um, you make the wise simple, um, or, God, you make the simple wise. Um, God, you conform us to the image of your Son as we behold you in your word. So, God, we ask that you do all of those things, um, God, and we're grateful that your word doesn't return void. Um, so be with us as we look at what you've done on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. So the context of this passage, as you have a seat, is um, essentially Paul and the Corinthian church have a very unique relationship. Um, there are actually four letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Uh, we have two of them recorded in our Bible. Um, in 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions a prior letter uh, that we don't have, and then he does the same in 2 Corinthians. He mentions a third letter um, that he wrote to the church in Corinth. And uh, essentially the situation is in Acts chapter 18, I believe, Paul plants the church in Corinth. And um, through a couple years of Paul leaving, um, as he said in Acts chapter 20, that there would be false teachers and other people that would creep up from within the church. There would be people that would come from outside the church. And uh, they start um, essentially changing the message and adding to the gospel, just like they do in most of the letters in the New Testament. You've got false teachers that come along and say, hey, you know, believing in Jesus isn't enough. You've got to start adding these other things. Um, there's this higher knowledge and all those other kind of things. They just start adding to the gospel. You've got to become a Jew, and then you can believe in Jesus. It's not just Jesus. It's Jesus plus the law. It's Jesus plus these other things. It's Jesus plus this, you know, knowledge of angels. You name it. Um, but as soon as you add to the gospel, Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, that you no longer have a gospel. That the gospel plus anything else is no gospel at all. That the gospel is God's grace, it's a free gift of God's grace that you and I would be saved, and it is through faith alone, in Christ alone. No works required, no effort on our part. Jesus has done the works, and he has put in the effort. And you and I don't have to strive for God's salvation, for his love, for his approval. We just have to admit that we could never earn it on our own. We let, make our hands empty. We let go of anything that we would hold on to in this world to try to get God to love us. And we put our faith in what Jesus has done. And because of what he's done, that's where um, salvation comes from, is putting our faith in what he's done and the work is finished. Um, so um, the church in Corinth, after Paul leaves and goes and plants other churches, False teachers rise up and they essentially change the message and uh, start telling people that, hey, Paul's not a genuine apostle. He's not a genuine believer because look at his life, right? It's full of suffering. It's full of beatings. It's full of, you know, being shipwrecked and whipped and thrown in prison. And they're saying that, hey, if Paul was a genuine apostle, if he was a genuine believer, um, his life would be much more successful. That, you know, his circumstances would be better. He would be rich. He would have all these blessings, uh, which ironically is, you know, one version of the gospel that we hear today, that if you put your faith in Jesus, everything's just gonna go well for you. You'll get money, you'll get fame, you'll get possess. you know, storms won't come your way. Your breakthrough's just always on the way. You know, and if you experience suffering, it's not God, it's just you didn't have enough faith and all those kind of things. But the absence of, you know, suffering was essentially associated with the gospel back in Paul's day. And these um, false teachers in Corinth were saying, no, 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 like Paul's not an apostle and it got so bad that Paul comes back to the church and they essentially run him out of town. And Paul just thinks it's best if he leaves. He gets a little humiliated and he writes the letter of 1 Corinthians to the church in Corinth, like begging them to repent and calling out things and telling them um, all the ways that they've been dishonoring the Lord, that they've been you know, butchering communion, as we'll see um, towards the end of our time together. But just all the ways, and by God's grace, um, the church at Corinth does repent, at least most of the people. And Paul, you know, still a little hesitant to come back. He sends one of his servants. I can't remember. Um, you can check me on it if it's Titus or Timothy, but he sends one of his servants to the church in Corinth and they report back that, hey, the people got your message. They are repenting, all of those kind of things. And then Paul ends up writing the letter of 2 Corinthians to show that, hey, this whole 
If you believe in Jesus, there won't be any suffering, that I'm not a genuine believer or a genuine apostle. That is not the case. And uh, Paul gets very emotional in 2 Corinthians. He gets very personal in 2 Corinthians um, because um, he has been challenged um, with his, you know, his authority, his apostleship, his faith. And uh, Paul's going to argue in this section um, that it's not the absence of suffering that shows that his faith is genuine. It's actually the presence of suffering that shows that his faith is genuine. Paul's saying, hey, like, why else would I go through all of these things if I didn't think this message was true and genuine and real? If, if this was all about earthly circumstances, I would go find another religion. Because, because of Paul's Christianity, he was being persecuted by Rome, um, by you know, Jewish believer or Jewish unbelievers that didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, by the scribes and the Pharisees, who he formerly was, all those kind of things. And Paul's saying, no, 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 the fact that I am suffering is about to show you that my faith is genuine. It's, it's genuine because I'm willing to suffer for it, be beat for it, go through trial and imprisonment for it. It's those things that will show. And here's, I'll just start reading in verse three. So Paul says this, he says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. And you see how intentional Paul is. He's looking at his personal life and he says, hey, in my personal life, I don't wanna put any obstacle in anybody else's way. And here's why so that my ministry won't be faulted. And there's a connection between your life and your ministry, your personal life your, and your message. And Paul knows that those things are true. In fact, in uh, his epistles to, or his letters to Timothy, he tells Timothy to watch his doctrine and his life very closely because this is especially true with you know, false teachers and preachers, when we are careless in one of those areas in doctrine, it's usually because we're careless, or we're, we're, we're careless in one of the other areas in our lives. Then when we start to lax on our doctrine, we start to lax in our own personal lives and our sins and make excuses for things and all of those kind of things. When we get careless with our lives, we typically get careless with our doctrine to make excuse for the way that we're living. And Paul says, no, 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 I'm, I'm being in, incredibly intentional. I don't wanna put any fault in my way so that when you look at the message that I proclaim, that it matches my life, that the, the life I live matches the message. In fact, this was his command in Philippians chapter one, after he talks about um, just how great salvation is and that Paul would rather you know, go and be with Christ than to stay here, but he's convinced that he's gonna stay for the sake of the church and all those kind of things. Um, he encourages the church at Philippi to live a life worthy of the gospel. And that word worthy there, some of you are like, what does that even mean? How do I live a life worthy of the gospel? The word worthy there in the Greek is the word axios. It's where we get our English word axis, where we get this balance term. And what he's talking about here is that you and I, we would live a life that's in balance with the gospel, that our life would match our message, that our life would match the doctrine that we teach. So for example, for the God of the universe to see me and see all of my sin and all of my brokenness and all of my, you know, just wickedness in my heart and to love me and to forgive me, for me to receive that, but then to not be a forgiving person to the people around me is not in balance. You see how those are off balance? For the God of the universe to know everything about me and still forgive me and then for me to not forgive you, you know, when you don't text me back or when you say something rude or whatever, like, those aren't in balance, right? For God to be gracious with me and patient with me, but then as soon as I have to wait on you, I get impatient and rude and mean. 
Those are not in balance. Do you see that? And what Paul is commanding the church at Philippi and commanding us in Philippians 1 is that we would live a life in balance with the gospel. And the only way we're gonna do that is if we daily meditate on the gospel, that we're motivated by the gospel. As Paul says in Galatians, that we would continually preach the gospel to ourselves. That's why we gather here this morning, to remind ourselves of the gospel, to remind ourselves of how much God loves us. So Paul's watching his life. He's very intentionally trying not to put any fault in anyone's way, in the way that he lives his life so that his message won't be hindered by his, his life. And he says this, verse four, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger, right? And let me just say this, the fact that you go through those things don't necessarily commend us and show that our faith is real. Like the fact that suffering exists doesn't necessarily commend us as genuine believers. Um, we've been talking about this, kind of been a theme as we've been singing this morning, um, is that this world is broken. It's fallen. I'm broken and fallen. My relationships are broken and fallen. That um, Romans 8 talks about how the creation is broken and groans and is longing for God to come and redeem the world. But we live in this broken world, and the fact that we suffer doesn't necessarily show, um, the presence of suffering alone doesn't necessarily show that our faith is genuine. But look at the first couple words in, a, in a, I think it's in verse four, uh, about halfway through. He says, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. You wanna know what will show the world a genuine faith? It's not that you suffer, but it's your endurance through the suffering. It's you clinging to the gospel in the midst of suffering and finding hope and joy and peace in the midst of suffering. We all are walking through suffering in this world, right? And you think of circumstances that we, you know, are either coming out of a storm or we're currently in one or we're heading into one. And that's true circumstantially, but even just in general, we all just feel the weight of the fall in our lives. We all live in Romans 7, where there's some things that we know we should be doing that we're not doing, and then there's some things that we know we shouldn't be doing, and we're wrestling against them, but we keep finding ourselves doing those things, and we're just living, I mean, sin is deep within us. It's deep in us. And you might not necessarily relate to, you know, calamities and beatings and imprisonments and riots, um, but I guarantee you some of the things on those lists um, apply. And there are some things that probably would apply to you that didn't apply to Paul. If it's miscarriages or marriage struggles, Paul was a single man, so of course that wouldn't show up in this text. And I'm not trying to add to scripture necessarily, but what I am saying is that the point Paul's making is that just the presence of suffering alone doesn't commend us or doesn't show our faith to be genuine, but what does to a watching world is your endurance through those things. Your endurance, your hope, your joy in the midst of the current sufferings of this world. And then he says, not just our endurance and suffering, but while we're going through this world, verse seven or verse six, he says, by purity, our knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. <clears throat> and I love that, that as you and I navigate the, the brokenness and the sufferings of this world because of the gospel, we don't navigate those empty-handed. 
But we navigate the, the hardships and the storms and the trials of this life, as Paul says here, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left, that God's given us his righteousness, his holiness, all of the armor of God in Ephesians 6. He's given us all of these things to navigate the trials of this life. And as we go through these trials that we're truthful, we have kindness and genuine love as we navigate these things because of the gospel. And then regardless of what happens, verse eight, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. I love that, that you and I, that we would endure because of the gospel. We now have the power by the Holy Spirit and the power of God to endure sufferings, trials with love, with peace, with joy, with truthful speech, all of those things. Every other worldview does not have a place for suffering in, in it. But the, the good news about the Christian worldview, about the gospel, is that there is even a place for suffering. That you and I, that suffering exists and we know it's because of our own disobedience and our own sin, that the world is broken and that we're broken, but God in his grace has done something decisive about it. And that you and I, we can still navigate the chaos out there with peace in here and the pain out there with joy in here. And it doesn't mean, as we'll see in just a second, it doesn't mean that we can't get sad or we can't get emotional. In fact, uh, we do all of those things. But even in the midst of that, there's a joy, there's an anchor that holds underneath even the pains and the trials and the struggles of this world. And Paul's going to join in with some of these paradoxes that I think are so beautiful and, and describe the Christian life. So he starts with, uh, we are treated as imposters and yet are true. It's at the end of verse eight there. We're treated as imposters and yet are true. And I can't think of a more accurate statement about where we find ourselves in our world today and in our culture. That as believers, as we go through these things, as we navigate this world, that we are treated from the outside world, from the culture as imposters. We're phonies, we're fake, right? We're ignorant. Why would we submit our lives to this ancient book that we just don't understand, right? We're outdated, bigoted, you name it. That the watching world would look at believers as we navigate this life and the brokenness and the sufferings within it. And we've got truthful speech and genuine love and all of those things. And we submit our lives to the word of God. That we would be seen as imposters. And the good news of the gospel is that although we seem like we are imposters to the world, we know the one who is true. And we have the God of all truth who has given us his word, which is truth. And he will sanctify us and grow us into the image of his son by his word. That we have truth in the midst of all of the accusations of being imposters. And man, I can't imagine that day when we get to heaven and as a watching world looks down on the church and calls us imposters when we meet the one who is true and who has given us his word to guide us and his spirit within us to lead us in all truth. So that's the first one. That we are treated as imposters and yet we are true. Second one, as unknown and yet well-known. Once again, the watching world will look at the church, look at believers, and we will be misunderstood. We will be unknown to them. I don't get it. How are you doing this? I don't get why you... You know, you're able to function during this, that as, as you and I go through the brokenness of this life with joy and genuine love and peace and all of those things that's only found in the gospel, the watching world will look at that and go, I don't understand that one bit. 
then my hope and my prayer that as you cling to the gospel in the midst of your trial and your pain, that you've got a neighbor or a coworker or somebody going, how in the world are you okay? Like, I just don't understand it. And it's a peace that can only be found in the gospel. To where Peter, I mean, this is the context of 1 Peter, that the church would, you know, persevere and hold tight to the gospel in the midst of trial and persecution and suffering. And Peter says in 1 Peter 3 that we should always, as we do that, we should be prepared and ready to give a defense to anyone who asks us for the hope that is within us. And that we would do it with gentleness and respect. That as you and I press through and endure through the trials and the brokenness of this world, as people watch us, go through trial, go through suffering, experience brokenness, and we're not acting like we've got it figured out because we don't. We're not here this morning because we've got it figured out. We've found the bread, right? We found the one who does have it figured out. The beauty of the gospel is you don't have to have it figured out. You don't have to figure things out before you meet Jesus. You admit that you don't have it figured out, and you empty your hands of your own worldly wisdom and your own possessions and your own things, and you come to the cross with empty hands. That's the beauty of the gospel, is that none of us have it figured out. And we're proclaiming, hey, come and eat, as we're going to in a couple minutes, come and drink, and the only requirement is that you're hungry and you're thirsty. You don't have to do anything else. You just have to be spiritually hungry and thirsty for peace and a righteousness that you could never win or never attain on your own. It's only a righteousness found in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's the only way you or I will be saved. And the only way to get there is the narrow road of emptying your hands and admitting that you can't do it on your own. Tim Keller says the only way to be worthy of the gospel is to realize that you're completely unworthy of it. And that's the good news. Is the only thing that you, admit, you have to admit is you're unworthy and he's the only one who is worthy. And you fall at the feet of the cross and find his grace and his mercy through what Jesus has done for you. But he says, we're imposters, yet we're true. We're unknown to the world, but yet we're well known by the God of the universe. That as you and I live as foreigners and strangers and exiles in this world, one, that we would be well known by each other. This is the gift of the church. This is why the church is so important that as a watching world looks at you and doesn't understand that you would be surrounded by people who do understand. You would be known by one another, that we would be known by each other as a church. We wanna, we're working on doing a lot of things to make sure that you and I, we get to know each other so that we can do life with one another, but regardless of being known by one another, that we know that we are known by the one, the, the God of the universe, that as a watching world looks at us and doesn't understand that you can have peace and have comfort and have joy knowing that the only one who created all of this does know you. He knows your name. Paul says, I count everything else as loss except for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You can be known by him as you navigate a world that does not understand the life of a believer as we endure trial and suffering and pain and all of those kind of things. Then he says, is dying, and behold, we live, which is so true. And I don't think we have to explain to the watching world that all of us are dying, right? We know that. Um, every single one of us in here will die. You know, the death rate is pretty steady. It's one per person, right? Like, it's, it's, it still holds true. It's coming. But the good news of the gospel is that although, if you are in Christ, although we are all headed towards a earthly physical death, 
you and I will never have to taste death if you're in Christ. John 10, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. That we don't have to taste death for a second if you're in Christ. Why? Because someone else tasted it for us. Jesus took on our death so that we could have his life. And that's the good news of the gospel, that as we are moving towards death, and boy, do we spend a lot of money and energy trying to make it look like we're not moving towards death, right? But let me just tell you, all of those things are great. I'm not trying to deter any of those things, right? Pastor Will says if the barn is, you know, ugly painted or whatever, like I don't, but here's the thing. We do all of these kind of things and we are moving towards death, but the good news of the hope of the believer that um, First Corinthians, that outwardly as we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. That the closer you and I get to physical death, our souls, as, as our outward shells are moving towards decay, our inward soul, our spirit is moving towards life like we've never experienced it before. And that gives us hope. That allows us to endure the trials and the sufferings and the pains of this world. Why? Because we know that we're heading towards this decay and this earthly death. But the closer we get to it, the closer we get to life like we've never experienced it before. And that's the good news of the gospel, is that we are moving towards life like we've never dreamed of. So much hope in that. So he says, as dying it, behold, we live as punished and yet not killed. Same thing, Paul was experiencing physical punishment. Um, I don't know if any of you in this room are experiencing punishment for your faith in Christ. Um, it's not going crazy rampant in the US today, but I would venture to say we're probably not far off from a time where that might happen, uh, where there's legislation or there's just persecution from the world. Who knows? I'm not trying to be prophetic here. I'm just saying that Paul was actually experiencing punishment for following Jesus. And you might be experiencing punishment in your own relationships, um, family members who just don't understand, who take jabs and make comments and say things to try to get at you for your faith. We all experience some degree of punishment, probably not to Paul's level. Um, but the good news is that regardless of what punishment comes our way, we will not be killed. We won't. That you and I won't experience death for a moment. And Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That the moment you and your earthly body dies, you are in the presence of God if you're in Christ. So endure, keep pressing through that punishment, that trial, that storm, that suffering, you name it. Have joy in the midst of it. Why? Because the closer I get to it, the closer I get to, to life like I've never dreamed. And it doesn't mean as believers we go and look for trouble or look for you know, persecution. But as we follow Christ and it comes our way, we can have hope and we can endure with patience and with joy and with genuine love. So he says, punish and yet not killed. This is probably my favorite one, these last two. Um, verse 10, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing is sorrowful yet always rejoicing. This is the hope of the believer, that the Christian life isn't this you know, life removed from pain and from being emotional and showing tears and weeping and all of those kind of things. Jesus felt all of those things, felt pain, wept, was fatigued, sweat blood, all of the things that you and I, that as believers, we should be living a life that mourns with those who mourn and weeps with those who weep, 
and that we weep of our own sin and our own tragedies and our own trials and our own struggles. There's people within our church body who are navigating death right now, um, who are navigating death in the next few days of loved ones and all of those things. And we get sorrowful over that. We're crying with people in the first service together as we pray. We get sorrowful, and it's, it's not bad. Like, it's, it's here in Scripture that believers, we are sorrowful over sin, over brokenness, over death, over all of those things, but the hope of the gospel is underneath our sorrow, we can still rejoice. And I can't think of a more compelling and Christ-honoring, God-glorifying way to navigate trial and suffering is when you are sorrowful with your brothers and sisters, with your family, but underneath your sorrow and your pain and your weeping, there's rejoicing. And there's so much so many people that I know that just give glory to God in the way that they navigate the loss of loved ones or the trials because yes, they weep and they cry and they're sorrowful, but underneath it all, they say, man, I'm, I have hope, I have peace, and I have joy, and I can feel this, and at the same time, I can rejoice in who God is and what he's done and in the hope that I have in the gospel. No matter how bad things get, how dark things get, I have a hope that is in Christ. It's beautiful. And then he says, "Is poor yet making many rich which is so true of Paul, and I pray is so true of us, physically and spiritually. And it doesn't mean you have to go and try to be physically poor, but spiritually, mentally, you would view your possessions as of no worth to you. Yes, earthly possessions are fine. They're not a sin to have or anything like that, but we know that the only possession that matters is Jesus Christ, and we're poor to everything else. The Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, that we know the first requirement to receive the grace of God is to admit that we're spiritually poor, that we're bankrupt, and that Paul lived a life that was poor according to the world's standards, that was poor according to the world's possessions, but boy, did he leverage his life to make many people rich, and that we would do the same, that we would use the possessions that God's given us, we would use the gifts that God's given us, you know, earthly possessions, spiritual gifts, all the things that God's given us, that we would use those to make people rich in the gospel. We would leverage our possessions, leverage our homes, leverage our vehicles, you name it. We would use all of those things. We would not put our hope in those things for a second. We would not put any spiritual worth in those things for a minute. We would use those things. As people who are spiritually bankrupt and poor in spirit, we would use those things to make many people rich. And this was Paul's life. As he's struggling, as he's suffering, as he's enduring trial, he leveraged his life to make many people rich in the gospel, pointed them to the cross. And then lastly, he says, is having nothing and yet possessing everything. And this is the paradox of the gospel, that you and I, when we put down our own works, we put down our own righteousness, we put down our own good deeds, our own I'm a good person, when we put all those things down and we have nothing, when we have Christ, we have everything. And that's the good news of the gospel, is that in Christ, you need nothing else, and you have everything. And we don't add a single thing to the gospel, but we come with empty hands. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And when we empty ourselves, our own pride, our own ego, our own striving, our own work, our own effort, and we trust in Jesus's effort and his striving and his work and his goodness and his holiness that we have nothing, but in Christ we have 
everything we could ever need. And the pain of this passage for me was looking at my life this week and holding this mirror as James chapter one says that the word of God is like a man looking at his face in a mirror um, because it exposes our own lives as we look at it and as we meditate on it, right? And the problem with me is that I, I read this text and I go, man, I don't know if people would look at my life and see these things in me. And the point of that this morning is is not to, because I think this is what Paul's encouraging the church at Corinth to do, to follow in his step. And the point this morning is not to to leave here and just muster up all these things in your own will, in your own flesh. Just, hey, just go try to live a life um, that's spiritually poor, that makes many people rich. And you just gotta convince yourself to do it and talk yourself into it and just muster this up in your own strength. That's not the goal. That's never the goal. The goal, we'll only live a life like this when we remember the gospel. That's the only way. The only way you will endure for him is when you remember that he endured for you. And when I forget that and think that it's up to me to endure, I'll fail over and over and over again. I mean, look at each of these things. Start in um, verse, uh, the end of verse eight. Treat it as imposters and yet are true. The only way we'll do this is when we remember that Jesus was treated as an imposter so that you and I could know the, you and I could know the truth as unknown and yet well-known. The only way that you and I will live a life like this is when we remember that Jesus was treated as unknown so that you and I could be known by the Father. That Jesus on the cross, the only time in the New Testament when Jesus calls the Father God instead of Father is when he's hanging on the cross. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the point of that sentence is, that Jesus at the cross did not call God his father so that you and I could call God our father. That he was cast out so that you and I could be brought in. He was unknown so that you and I could be well known. Then he says this, as dying and behold we live. The only way we'll live a life like that is when we remember that he died so that you and I could live. Punished and yet not killed. (laughs) Praise God for this one. The only way we will live a life in response to this is when we remember that Jesus was the one was punished so that you and I could not be killed and that we could have life everlasting. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing, the only way you and I can have joy in the midst of pain is when we realize that he became sorrowful so that we could rejoice. Poor yet making many rich. The only way we'll live a life in response is when we remember that for our sake, he who was rich became poor, so that you and I, we could be rich in the gospel. And then as having nothing yet possessing everything, the only way that you and I in response will live a life that resembles this and displays this to the world is when we remember that he made himself nothing so that you and I could have everything in Christ. The more we remember the gospel, the more we will display a life that is worthy of it, that it matches it, that is in line with it in the midst of our suffering. The only way you and I get to partake of all of these things is because Jesus Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed on our behalf. So we wanna move to a time as we've looked at God's word, as we've heard the gospel, and uh, take communion together. Um, If you are a guest, if you're unfamiliar to what communion is, communion is essentially just an ordinance that Jesus Christ gave to his church. Um, It's a symbol Uh, to remember the cross, to remember what he's done, to remember that Jesus lived the perfect life and then willingly went to the cross and had his body broken and his blood poured out for all the ways that we failed to meet God's standard.
and all the ways that we've sinned. And uh, if you're not a believer in the room, we would highly encourage you um, and ask you specifically not to partake of communion. If you don't know um, that you have a personal saving faith in Jesus Christ um, because of what he's done for you on the cross, we would ask you, in fact, we would have a lot of respect for you um, if you did not partake of this. I wanna read this to you. This is Paul's instructions on communion. Um, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, he gives a warning after he gives the instructions and he said, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now the church at Corinth was doing, you know, some crazy things when it comes to communion. They were getting drunk off the wine and they were treating it as just, you know, a full dinner and all those kind of things. And they were not treating it as the, the symbol that Jesus instituted, that it would be a, a spiritual marker and a, and a thing for the, the gathered church to do, to remember and celebrate Jesus's body broken and his blood shed. And Paul encourages us that before we have and partake of this reminder that you and I, as Jesus says in John 6, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood um, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You and I, we metaphorically get to partake of Jesus' body broken and his blood shed. But before we do that, he encourages us to examine ourselves, that this isn't just a wafer and a cup and some juice, um, that it's a symbol that Jesus has instituted um, for people who are in this new covenant of his grace, where we don't have to work for God's love, we don't have to earn it, but it's freely given to us by Jesus' body broken and his bloodshed. So I wanna encourage you, um, I'm gonna read um, his instructions and then um, we're gonna just give you some time to examine yourself, to pray, to ask the Holy Spirit to remind you of um, if there's any sin in your life that's unrepentant, um, if there's any sin in your life that you've just made excuses for, um, that the Holy Spirit would bring that to your mind and that we would lay that before the Lord and we would examine ourselves before we come and take communion and then um, our elders will be down here. We've got two of our elders, um, Jeff and Brent. They'll be down here and they'll be happy to serve you. So the way this is gonna work is I'm gonna read. You take a few minutes and examine yourself and just spend time before the Lord and pray. Thank him for the cross. Thank him for his bloodshed. And then you will come down whenever you're ready and grab the elements and go back to your seat. And then um, I would encourage you, um, as a family, you can take communion together. Um, dads, it's real simple. If you wanna lead your family and just say a prayer and thank God, thank Jesus for his blood shed or his body broken and his blood shed and then y'all can take it together. Or if you're by yourself, feel free to take communion um, by yourself there. But uh, I love seeing families do this together and all those kind of things. But I would encourage you, however you wanna partake of it, but take a minute, examine yourself, come down when you're ready, grab the elements and go back to your seat and then take communion um, how you wish and then uh, we'll respond in worship. Um, but I'll read this and then we'll pray. Um, this is Paul writing about um, communion. He says this, for I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Lord, God, our only boast is in you. The only reason we can stand, we can have hope in this life, that we can have joy, 
is because you came down from heaven. God, we can't fathom how the God of the universe who spoke it into existence looks down on a broken world with hopeless, lost people who cannot save themselves and would be so gracious and so loving and so kind to step out of heaven and take on human flesh. God, and meet your own standard on our behalf to live a perfect life that we could never live and then to go to the cross and die for our sin. God, we're grateful. What love, what mercy would compel the God of the universe to die for sinners? So God, we give you praise. We give you our lives. We give you our hearts. And God, we take of this symbol as this new covenant church believers. God, we pause and we come to the table and we remind ourselves of your body broken and your bloodshed. And we give you all the praise and the glory for it. In Christ's name, amen. So take a minute, spend some time with the Lord and then come when you're ready.